0: Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Happy Mother's Day to you. And if you have your Bibles, please take them out now and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of James in the back part of your New Testament and chapter number one. You don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn in the back part to 178, and you would be at James chapter 1. Every single year, tens of thousands of people are injured by taking a fall, and there are hazards everywhere. And as I shared last week, there are some common causes of slips and trips in our life, and uh, three of them are, number one, a messy, cluttered area can cause a trip. Poor visibility and adequate lighting can create a hazard. And then another common cause is running or walking too fast. And when I look at three of the significant trips and falls I've had in my life, they fit into right into those three different categories. Last week, I shared probably the greatest fall I ever took, which came from a messy, cluttered area. Remember, I had that slime in my driveway, and I shared the story about how I hit the slime when I planted my foot, and I went airborne and then slammed down into the concrete. I want to share with you this morning a a second big trip and slip I had. It, It didn't happen out of my driveway. It actually happened inside of my house, in the front entry of my house. And if you come to our house, you'll see that we have this ceramic tile in the front entryway. And right off to the side of that tile is a little bathroom. And I will often go into that little bathroom and use that little bathroom. So this particular time, it was very late at night and all of the lights were out. I came down the stairs and I'm headed to the bathroom. But I don't need to, to look around or be careful because... I've done this many times. I know just where the wall is, just from the stairs and everything else. So I'm moving right along to head to the bathroom. What I did not know is that my wife had left a particular piece of equipment sitting right there. And so I'm moving along briskly. I hit that piece of equipment. I go airborne again. I have a gift for this. And then slam back down uh, onto the tile. And uh, actually knocked the wind out of myself, and I'm laying there, and I'm thinking, yep, it's going to happen again. It's going to be black and blue all the way up my side, and indeed, I turned black and blue for a second time. I thought about bringing you pictures of this, but then I didn't want to gross you out. But man, what a fall. That was some poor visibility, uh, some inadequate lighting. By the way, I'm slow, but I'm not that slow. So I've now learned from that. If you come to my house at night, there are three different lights that will be on all night long, so that if I get up in the evening, I always have just enough light to see if there's an unusual object that could be there so that I don't slip and trip again. Well, these common trip hazards that we have in our physical life, we also have in our spiritual life, and tens of thousands of followers of Christ have... Spiritual slips and trips each week. And we could talk about a lot of the potential causes, but what our, I am doing right now is actually focusing on two of them, two common trip hazards. And we've entitled our little series, Dealing with the Double Ts. And the Double Ts are two common trip hazards. The first one is temptation. And the second one that can tend to trip us up is the tongue, and so we're going to be looking at those two. We began looking at temptation last week, and you remember our goal was to improve our understanding of the process of temptation. And last week, we looked at James 1, verses 13 to 16, which we said was a primer on temptation. It gives us the basic elements of temptation. And you will remember that while Satan may have the nickname tempter, and while the world is always trying to squeeze us into its mold, we saw last time that the primary source of temptation in our life is our own desires, our own sinful heart. The temptation comes from inside. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 7. He said, for from within, out of a person's heart... Come evil thoughts, and sexual immorality, and theft, and murder, and adultery, and greed, and wickedness, and deceit, and eagerness for lustful pleasure, and envy, and slander, and pride, and foolishness. And Jesus said, all these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And last time, you remember, we talked about how it is not a sin to be tempted. It's just not a sin. It's just the first step, though, in the process and what happens is we have a temptation, and then that desire conceives. It's, it, that begins to happen. The conceiving of the act is when we choose to entertain the temptation, when we choose to pursue the temptation. And finally, it gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. It becomes a real killer in our life. And we experience consequences that can hurt and damage ourselves and can damage other people. So understanding temptation is a good start, but that's not our goal. It's not just to understand it, but what we want to do is experience victory in it. We want to learn how to properly respond to temptation, how to handle temptation effectively, and that is our goal today as we continue looking at the double Ts, particularly temptation. Now, what's really interesting to me is that in James chapter 1, James actually surfaces the top tool in our tool belt in battling with temptation. Now, there are a lot of tools that we can use, but what is the top tool? I want you to think about that for a moment. What is the top tool in dealing with temptation and battling temptation? By the way, it is a tool that is frequently missing in the everyday arsenal of many of us when we're dealing with temptation. It is a tool that King David overlooked at a pivotal moment in his life. It is a tool that Joseph embraced at a pivotal moment in his life. The top tool in our battle with temptation. Does anyone know what it is? Anybody have any guesses as to what it would be? What is the top tool? Okay, I'm hearing several things. Scripture's a good one. There's a whole bunch of them, but here is the top tool. The goodness of God. The goodness of God. Notice, as he's talked about temptation from verses 13 to 16, what he goes on to say in verse 17. He says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Here is James' assertion as he is tackling the subject matter of temptation. His assertion is that the top tool In our arsenal, there are many, but the top tool in our arsenal against temptation is the goodness of God, and it's so true. Now, let me give you the outline of what we're going to be looking at today, just so you know where we're going. The first thing we're going to do is look at this central principle in verse 17 of the goodness of God, and then secondly, we're going to look at two real-life illustrations. One, a failure when it came to using the tool of the goodness of God, and one, a success. And then, thirdly, we're going to look at the ultimate expression of the goodness of God that we see in verse 18. So that's our plan. We're going to look at the central principle of the goodness of God in our battle with temptation. We're going to look at two real-life illustrations. Then we're going to look at the ultimate expression, which is our salvation, we will see. So it begins with the central principle in Verse 17. Now, I want you to look at verse 17 for a moment and think about how many times maybe you've quoted that verse or you've heard that verse shared by somebody or you have gone and you've read that verse in part of your spiritual walk and thought that's an important verse. What's interesting to me is how frequently that verse is cited, totally stripped away from its context. What is the context here in James 1? He's talking about the issue of temptation. And this verse is a continuation of the discussion. Remember, he's talked about all this process in the previous verses, and he says in verse 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And then he says, I want to talk about the tool here, which is the goodness of God. Remember his assertion, James' assertion. The top tool in our arsenal against temptation is the goodness of God. Now, think about how Satan's ploy works with us when he takes on that little title of the tempter. And you can see it in Genesis 3. Remember how he dealt with Eve? And basically, the message that he said to Eve is, God is holding out on you. God is not good. And that's the message she began to buy into. Was she thinking about all the goodness of God that he had done? No. She was buying into this fact that, well, you know, God's not really good. God's holding out on you. Sometimes you might think to yourself, well, why did God put put boundaries on sex? Why did God say that sex should only really be functioning inside of a marriage relationship. And the enemy likes to come along and say, well, you know, really the problem is that God's holding out on you. God's really not good. God was good. He would let you utilize that relationship, that part of a relationship outside of marriage. Sometimes you might even wonder because you know that the Bible says it's very important that we're very diligent on our job, that we put in an honest day's work for the pay that we receive. And the enemy can come along and say, well, you know, you don't really need to do that. Um, God is just down on fun, you're not good, you need to learn to have fun in your job. You know, fool around a little bit on there, don't really work so hard, that's what everybody else is doing. You know that the Bible places a priority on integrity and character. And you might say, well, why is that so important? And again, the enemy wants to come along and say, you know, God really isn't good. God's really holding out on you because we all know that those people who cut corners gain, the problem is that God's really not good. See how that works so frequently? Notice that verse 17, it says, Every good thing given. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Everything that we have that's good comes from above. That includes, obviously, our spiritual blessings. The psalmist writes in Psalm 86.5, you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. And we would all know that all of the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ are good things. They're good gifts from him. The good that he has done for us includes our spiritual blessings, but you know what includes a whole lot more than that? It includes our natural blessings. This is what we often tend to lose track of. J.I. Packer, I love the way he put it. He puts this this way. He says, God controls all that happens in his world. Have you thought about this recently? Every meal, every pleasure, every possession, every bit of sun, every night's sleep, every moment of health, every moment of safety, everything else that sustains and enriches life is a divine gift. And he goes on to say, and how abundant these gifts are. You see, it's so easy to lose sight of the goodness of God, not only our spiritual blessings, but the natural blessings that we have. The blessings of food and drink, the blessings of a home that we can stay and be dry and safe, that has heat and on days like today, has air conditioning. The gift of clothing, The gift of being able to wear a coat when you're cold and for many of us to put on shorts on a very, very hot day like today. The goodness of God and the gifts of our spouse and our children and our parents and our friends. Just the gift of colors. Many of you are wearing colorful clothes today and the the gift of the beautiful sights that we can see in this world. We spent most of this week, Janet and I and uh, our daughter Jennifer in New York City in Times Square area there. And uh, I'll tell you, it was really special at night to go into Times Square. And you have these incredible, I mean, you know, building-sized lights and billboards and moving things, and the colors were amazing. And just to sit there and watch the whole phenomenon taking place and, and watching all the people milling around a gift from God to be able to enjoy stuff like that. It's a gift of His goodness that you can enjoy sound, that you can enjoy the, the texture of touch, and all the various tastes that we have, and that you have eyes, and that you have arms, and that you have legs, and then we have cars. And then we have boats, and we have planes, we have technology. All of these things, you see, are expressions of the goodness of God to us. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. And then notice it goes on to say, coming down from the Father of lights. The picture is that of a waterfall of generosity, And every single day, there is a waterfall of the generosity of the goodness of God into your life and into my life. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, there is a consistency to his goodness. Think about it. He delivers every day on it. Every day there's this waterfall of goodness that comes your way and mine. There's a consistency to his goodness, a constancy to his goodness. Think about what a tremendous contrast that is with us, right? I mean, we have our good days and our bad days. We have our ups and we have our downs. We have our ins, we have our outs. But basically, we are a people of inconsistencies, but God's very different from that, especially when it comes to his goodness. He is constant with his goodness. Now, I cannot speak for you, but I can speak for myself. And I know that I have a tendency to lose focus on the goodness of God. It's just so easy to go through a day and forget all of these natural blessings, expressions of his goodness that he flows down to me. And you can even add in a lot of the spiritual blessings also. We tend to lose focus on the goodness of God, whether we're involved in dealing with a temptation that relates to sexual desire or a temptation that relates to pride and self-promotion, or whether we are dealing with a temptation that relates to our love of popularity or Power and control or prosperity, it doesn't make any difference. In all those kinds of temptations, we have this tendency to lose focus on the goodness of God. I want to share with you a quote by Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and I just want you to look at these words for a moment and just let them kind of burn into your heart. Satan does not here, that means down in this world, fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And a big part of that is forgetting his goodness. It's the top tool when it comes to the battle with temptation. Now, the second thing we said we were going to look at today are two real-life illustrations. They are similar situations. Both of them deal with the temptation to sexual sin. And the two illustrations from real life are David and Joseph. And in David's case, he lost sight of the goodness of God as he was dealing with his temptation. But by contrast, Joseph remembers the goodness of God. And while David experiences defeat, Joseph experiences victory. So let's take a look at them You can keep your finger here in James 1. We will be back. We need to turn way more towards the front of your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you remember the story of David was that he was the king and he was attracted to the wife of another man, one of his military leaders. And he ends up committing adultery with her In fact, he ends up basically arranging for the execution of her husband. She ends up pregnant. It's a big mess. And God decides he's going to confront David about this. And so in verse 1, he sends Nathan to David. And what you have really in the first few verses, first six verses, is a little parable that Nathan begins to tell David. And it's a story of unfairness and injustice. And, of course, David gets very incensed listening to the story. And then I want you to notice what happens in verse 7. As he's told this little parable to David, and David gets mad at this individual in the parable, then Nathan says to David, you're the man, you're the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about you. And then Nathan says... Thus says the Lord God of Israel. In other words, David, I'm now going to give you God's exact perspective on this. And I want you to notice what God says through Nathan to David. He says to him, it is I, David, who anointed you king over Israel. I'm the one who placed you in your family. I'm the one who placed you in the nation. I'm the one who gave you your life's position. Remember my goodness to you, David? And he goes on to say, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. David, have you forgotten my goodness? I rescued you from the trouble in your life. I rescued you from personal attacks. I rescued you out of crushing circumstances. I rescued you from illness. Have you forgotten my goodness? Notice he goes on to say, I also, David, gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. I gave you, David, your possessions. I gave you your home and your car and your computer and your family and your husband and your wife and your children. And then he goes on to say, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. What's the thrust that God is communicating to David? David, have you forgotten my goodness? And the answer to the question is yes, he had. He didn't have that tool in his tool belt when he was facing temptation. Now, keep the example of David in mind and turn with me to Genesis chapter number 39, all the way to the first book in the Bible, Genesis 39. And we have a second example, which is Joseph. Genesis 39, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 9. Just a little setup, though, with Joseph. You remember that he was... An Israelite, and he had been basically sent down into Egypt by his brothers who were trying to get rid of him. And and God rescued him there in a foreign land, and God gave him a privileged position. He became the number one guy to the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh. It's amazing for a foreigner to reach that point. He was in charge of all of his operations. And you might remember that God had blessed him in many, many ways. And the story goes, if you look at uh, chapter 39 and verse 7, that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. She was sexually attracted to him and she said, Hey, let's get it on, maybe. A little bit of Bruce translation in there. But I want you to notice what happens. He refused and said to his master's wife, behold, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. I mean, your husband has given me complete operational control of everything, and he was a very wealthy man, a very powerful person in the kingdom of Egypt. He's put all that he owns in my charge There is no one greater in this house than I am in terms of responsibility and respect, and he has withheld nothing from me. I have everything, all these material blessings that he has allowed me to have. The only thing he has withheld from me is you because you are his wife. And then I notice what he says next. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Isn't that an interesting statement that he makes? What's he really saying? How can I ignore God's goodness in my life? It's amazing how it is streamed down to me, Joseph says. How could I ignore the goodness of God? You know what's really interesting is All that we have, these good gifts, these expressions of the goodness of God, these good gifts are things that we can misuse. I mean, that's what David did. It's what Joseph refuses to do, to take a good gift and to misuse it. Let's just talk about, since both of these episodes deal with the issue of, of sexuality. You know, our sex drive is a gift given to us by God. Can I get an amen out there anywhere, all right? Just want to make sure you're awake, yeah. Our sex drive is a gift given to us by God, but it is a gift that is to be used within the marriage relationship. You know that the gift of sex is very much like a river. A river is designed to flow within its banks, and when a river is inside of its banks, it is a good thing. But when it overflows, it becomes a destructive force. You know, we landed coming back in Memphis, and the Mississippi River is reaching flood levels there that it has not reached since the 1930s, and it's wreaking havoc everywhere in the Memphis area, and of course, other places too. In in the same sort of way, when sex gets outside of the boundaries that it was designed for, it begins to wreak some havoc. There can be the loss of innocence and purity. There's the potentiality for disease and, and pregnancy outside of marriage. It can wreak havoc with emotional wounds, distorted thinking, It it can begin to take the beautiful gift that God created and begin to, to dirty it. It can lead to the collapse of trust between people. You see, when a river gets outside of its boundaries, we have a word for that. It's called a swamp. Swamps stink. We can take good gifts and misuse them. David misused the goodness that God had given to him. Joseph said not going to do it. You know that one of the one of the good gifts that God gives to us in this whole area of temptation is that he provides an escape hatch for every temptation we ever face. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Have you looked at that verse recently? Notice it says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, it's not unique with you or with me. We all struggle with various kinds of temptation. And and there may be people who are just sort of your cousins in the area of the temptation that you struggle with, but you're not alone. It's common to to people. But notice it goes on to say, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to. Even when it's temptations that God allows to come our way, he still calibrates them. He still controls them. It's not beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will provide, here comes the key words, the way of escape. If you underline your Bible, you ought to underline that, the way of escape so that you will be able to endure the temptation. With every temptation that comes to us, there are two doors always sitting there. One door is the way of defeat, and the second door is the way of victory. One aspect of this way of escape in a temptation that is always present, it never goes away, is to remember the goodness of God. It's the top tool. And that will help us in the way of escape. Now, the third thing we said we were going to look at today, we have to go back to the book of James in order to look at it, is the ultimate expression of the goodness of God. And we see that in verse 18. The principles given to us in verse 17, but the ultimate expression of the goodness of God is verse 18, and it's the salvation that Jesus Christ has won for us on the cross. Notice it says in verse 18, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The salvation that Jesus Christ won for us on the cross. Notice he did it, it says in verse 18, by the exercise of his will. He didn't do it because you deserved it or I deserved it or because you earned it or I earned it. He did it by the exercise of his will because he wanted to. A great summary of this is found in Titus chapter 3 verses 5 to 7 where it says there that he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It's not that we stacked up the good and he was impressed, but according to his mercy, which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He took your penalty. He paid for your sins. And notice in verse 18, it says, he brought us forth. It's a picture of giving us birth by the word of truth, by the message of the gospel. That's what he used to introduce us to new life in him. And he says, so that we would be kind of a first fruits among his creatures. He's talking about those individuals to whom he was writing were pioneers in this gospel, but in some ways, we're still pioneers. We're just part of the first fruits of the harvest. His goodness doesn't stop with us in terms of what he's done for us on the cross. You want another thing that's part of the goodness of God? Is that he chooses to use you and he chooses to use me to be able to pass along this message of the cross of Jesus Christ. What A privilege that is. That, that's incredible goodness from God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you made the life choice to embrace the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your life? Have you done that? Have you ever come to God and said, I am a sinner, God. I've messed it up. And I want to trust in your cross and the death of Jesus there for me so that I can experience forgiveness, so that I can have a second birth, a spiritual birth in my life. Have you ever come to him and said, I desire to reconnect with you as my creator by saying, I believe in Christ as my Savior? The cross is the greatest expression of the goodness of God there has ever, ever been. And if you haven't yet done it today, you can embrace the ultimate goodness of God by faith. By telling him, your heart to God's heart. I want that change in my life. I want to experience forgiveness in new life. You remember James' assertion, the top tool in our arsenal against temptation is the goodness of God. Now, I want to talk about, as we finish looking at this section of Scripture, three life steps that I suggest that we should take in light of what we have seen and learned today. First step is to turn, the second step is to celebrate, and the third is to employ. Are you ready to go? Here we go. The first life step is to turn to the Savior today. If you have not done that, you need to do that. You don't need to get up out of your seat to do that. This can be a transaction, again, from your heart to the heart of God right where you're sitting. If you just say to him, that's what I want to do. I want to believe and trust in what Christ has done for me. If you have questions, if you'd like someone maybe to pray with you, there'll be some folks available over here by these stairs, by the cross, after the service who would be happy to talk to you. But the first life step all of us need to take if we haven't yet done it is to turn to the Savior today. The second, the second life step is to celebrate daily God's goodness. And the key word there is daily. You know, the thing about David is David made a lot of mistakes. David had a lot of failures. David had a lot of slips and trips, but he learned from them. And in Psalm 145, which is the last psalm that he writes, he writes these words. He says, every day, God, I will bless you. I will praise your name. Every day. And we need to celebrate daily God's goodness. You say, well, how do you do that practically? Well, here's one way that you can do it. And I've been working on this myself. As you start a new day, thank Him for His goodness from the day before. Thank Him for the good gifts that He sent your way the day before. And what is really interesting is if you begin a new day, thanking Him for His goodness from the previous day, you will notice a whole lot more about His goodness on the day that is to come. Turn to the Savior today. Celebrate daily God's goodness. And then the third life step we need to take is to employ the AFR strategy. The AFR strategy. In fact, I believe the AFR strategy is the the, the worn path, the good path, to the escape hatch that God provides in temptation. What do I mean by the AFR strategy? Well, it involves three verbs, avoid, flee, and resist. This has really helped me out in my own spiritual life. Just three verbs that are commonly used when it discusses the issue of temptation, and there's a logical progression to them. The first thing we need to do is we need to avoid temptation. Seems pretty simple, but often we don't do it. That's the best way to begin to deal with it. You avoid the wrong input. You avoid the wrong environment. You avoid the wrong people. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, bad company corrupts good morals. So the first way to find victory in the AFR strategy is to avoid. Don't subscribe to the premium channel. Skip the party that you heard about that certain things are going to be happening at. Before you go to the movie, check it out. Do some research on all of that. The first step is to avoid. But there's times when we can't avoid, right? Sometimes we, we may be intended to, but we suddenly find ourselves faced with temptation. And when you can't avoid, the second thing that you do logically is that you flee, By the way, that's an interesting Bible study. You ought to grab a concordance and just look up that word flee and track it through. By the way, that's what Joseph ultimately had to do because he was saying to his master's wife, "Uh uh-uh. She begins to disrobe him. What does he do? He takes off. He couldn't avoid it, so he had to flee. He had to run. That's the second step if you can't avoid is that you flee. It may mean that you leave the party. You walk out of the party. You walk out of the movie. I've done that before myself. You disconnect the premium channel. You change the people that you associate with. You avoid. When you can't avoid, you flee. And when you can't flee, because sometimes that's not there, you resist. You resist. In Proverbs 1.10, it says, If sinners entice you, they're tempting you, do not consent. You resist. How do you get the power to do that? Well, you know the interesting thing is that God lives inside of you if you know Him, (laughs) in the person of the Holy Spirit. There's God living inside of you and me. Another little Bible study that might be helpful for you to consider is to take the book of Wisdom in the in the the Old Testament in the middle of your Bible, the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, and just notice the emphasis that you see there on resisting. The AFR strategy will help us avoid, flee, resist. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. It is alive. It is powerful. It is able to equip us. It is able to allow us to avoid slips and trips from temptation. And Father, I would pray that, that you would cultivate in our hearts, the people at Wildwood here, men and women and young people, who are seeking to celebrate the goodness of God on a daily basis. And we know it's the top tool of many in our arsenal against temptation. May we be men and women who always are reveling in your goodness to us. And we pray that as we do that, we'll honor you with our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.